Boker Tov, everyone. Welcome to the Aliyah Day. I am glad to be with you. Rabbi Mordecai Griffin here, enjoying uh, this opportunity to sit down with uh, several hundred of my closest friends from across the Fruited Plain, Those, uh, some of whom are watching live at this moment, and others will be watching uh, uh, the recorded version, and so that's great, and people watch from all across the United States from coast to coast, and 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 literally, we have people in in uh, six continents. Still waiting to hear from somebody in Antarctica. If you're watching from Antarctica, I realize your lines may be frozen, but let us know if you're actually watching. That would be fantastic. I'm here enjoying a cup of uh, French roast coffee, black, no cream, no sugar, because that's how I roll. And we're watching, or watching, we're, we're reading the PowerShot E-More. And we want more, don't we? We want more E-More. And so this is the sixth and seventh reading uh, of the Aliyah. And it's been uh, wonderful. There are lots of insights to share today. And so I'm going to get right to the reading so that we can get right to the insights and prayerfully catch as many of those as we can. Because as you know, sometimes I will comment along the way and... And uh, it's all good, but you know, uh, we're just going to get right to it. So we're going to be on page 687 for our Sephardic Jews out there. That's 687, capítulo 23, verso 33. And la palabra de Dios dice esto. Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, On the 15th day of the seventh month is the festival of Sukkot. A seven-day period for Adonai. Now notice that it says here in the Torah that that uh, Sukkot is a seven-day festival. And yet, we have Shemaniat Zeret, which makes it an eight-day festival. And that is because the Shemaniat Zeret is considered a separate festival. And it says, on the 15th day of the seventh month is the festival of Sukkot, a seven-day period for Adonai. On the first day is a holy convocation. You should not do any laborious work. So the first day of Sukkot is a Yom Tov. For a seven-day period, you shall offer a fire off in Adonai. And on the, on the eighth day, there should be a holy convocation for you. And you shall offer a fire off in Adonai as assembly. You should not do any laborious work. That's that eighth day I was mentioning, because it's the Torah says there's a seven-day festival, but then it says on the eighth day. Notice that on Passover, just to point this out, Passover has uh, a, a Yom Tov on the first day and a Yom Tov on the seventh day. Sukkot has a Yom Tov on the first day, and but it does not, the last day of Sukkot is, is Hoshana Rabbah. It is not a Yom Tov. But the next day, Sheminiat Zeret, which also is Simchat Torah, uh, is a Yom Tov. Now, we and Lapid Judaism, we follow the Israeli calendar when it comes to festivals, as opposed to the Diaspora calendar. In other words, in the Diaspora, all these Yom Tovs would have two Yom Tovs. So, and the reason they did that, just to give you a quick synopsis, the reason they did that is because back before we had a set calendar, these extra yamta was was added because communication took a, a while to get around into the diaspora, and so the fear was is that people might 
inadvertently be not keeping a Yamto. So they kept them two. They kept two to just to make sure they didn't mess anything up. Well, after the calendar was set, there was really not a need for to do that. So today in the diaspora, it's merely done simply and solely out of tradition, but there's no halakhic reason to do so. Um, and so in Israel, there's only it's only one day of Yom Tov, and ex- with the exception, the only day, the only holiday that has a two-day Yom Tov in Israel and in the diaspora is Rosh Hashanah. So we at Lapid Judaism will be keeping a two-day Rosh Hashanah. And the reason for that, can anybody guess what the reason is? I'm going to give you two seconds to tell me the reason why you th- you would think that the only holiday on the calendar to include the Israeli calendar would have a two-day Yom Tov on Rosh Hashanah. Anybody can guess? I'm guess. Do, 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 do. Okay, somebody had the right answer. I know they just are nervous and not able to type it out. The answer is, is because it's the only holiday on the Jewish calendar that occurs on a new moon. It's the only holiday on the on the Hebrew calendar that occurs on a new moon. Rosh Hashanah. Why? Well, because Rosh Hashanah is also understood in Judaism to be the day... Uh, upon which the resurrection of the dead is going to occur. The resurrection of the dead is going to occur on Rosh Hashanah. Now we're going to come back to this in a second. I want to talk more about that. But uh, this is the day that happens on a new moon. So it's the really the only holiday in, w- uh, in which man, no man knows the day or the hour exactly. Hello? Can you hear me? Um, which is why it's a two-day holiday even in Israel. And therefore, it is for us. So, um, um, verse 37, right? That's where we left off? Yes. These are the appointed festivals of Adonai that you shall proclaim as a holy convocations to offer a far off Adonai, an elevation offering and its meal offering, a feast offering and its libation, each day's requirement on its day. Aside from Adonai's Sabbaths and aside from your gifts, aside from all your vows, aside from all your free will offerings, which you will present to Adonai. But on the 15th day of the seventh month, you shall gather in the crop of the land. You shall celebrate Adonai's festivals for a seven-day period. The first day uh, the first day is a rest day and the eighth day is a rest day. You shall take for yourself on the first day the fruit of the citron tree, the branches of the date palm, twigs of a plated tree and brook willows, and you shall rejoice before Adonai your God for a seven-day period. Who doesn't love the lulav? Who doesn't love a lulav? That's correct, Leonard. Uh, this day for Rosh Hashanah will be, the, the first day of the week will also be a Yom Tov. Who doesn't love the lulav? And who doesn't love the uh, citron, the etrog? Uh, I love Sukkot. Um, what's my favorite holiday? Mm, I don't know. Uh, I really don't. I love I love so many holidays. I, I have a special affinity, though, for Rosh Hashanah. Um, I mean, I love Sukkot, don't get me wrong. But I love the Lulav. There's something so special. And when you when you get the Lulav, you know, we order them um, a lot of times. We, you know, we order them and they come in from uh, Nueva York, which I wonder this year how that's going to work. But anyway, they come in and uh, just beautiful citron and it smells so citrony. It's just beautiful. It's wonderful. Love it. Love it. I like it. 
Verse 41, you shall celebrate as a festival Adonai, a seven-day period in the year, an eternal decree for generations in the seventh month shall you celebrate it. You shall dwell in booths for a seven-day period. Every native in Israel shall dwell in booths, so that your generations will know that I caused the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I took them out of the land of Mitzrayim, I am Adonai your God. And Moses declared the appointed festivals Adonai to the children of Israel. Uh, chapter 24, verse 1. Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, Command the children of Israel that they take to you clear olive oil, pressed for lighting, to kindle a, a continuous lamp. <clears throat> Outside the curtain of the testimony, the the meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning, before Adonai continually an eternal decree for your generations. On the pure menorah shall he arrange the lamps before Adonai continually. You shall take fine flour and bake it at a twelve loaves. Each loaf shall be two-tenth ephah. You shall place them in two stacks, six in each stack upon the pure table before Adonai. You shall put pure frankincense on each stack, and it shall be a remembrance for the bread, a fire offering for Adonai. Each and every Sabbath he shall arrange them before Adonai continually from the children of Israel as an eternal covenant. It shall belong to Aaron and to his sons, and they shall eat of, it, of its holy place. Eat it in a holy place, Lika, for it is most holy for you from the fire off of Adonai, an eternal decree. Now the son of an Israelite woman went out, and he was the son of an Egyptian man among the children of Israel. They fought in camp, the son of the Israelite woman and an Israelite man. The son of the Israelite woman pronounced the name and blasphemed. He was part of the Hebrew Roots movement. Just kidding. Says, so they brought him to Moses. The name of his mother was Shalomis, daughter of Divri, of the tribe of Dan. They placed him under guard to clarify for themselves through Adonai. Now Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, Remove the blasphemer to the outside of the camp, and all those who heard shall lean their hands upon his head. The entire assembly shall stone him. Now, I just want to say something real quick. Because something similar to this happened when... Uh, the man was caught gathering on um, on Shabbat. That's funny. I just happened to look up and see Rachel's comment about Purim. Yeah, my absolute favorite holiday, I, I, silly me, is Purim. Um, what was I thinking? Yeah. But I do have an affinity for Rosh Hashanah, but Purim, Purim takes the cake. Uh, that's funny. Anyway, um, so anyway, the blasphemer. So the man caught uh, gathering wood on Shabbat. And that's a capital offense. But I want to point out that in both cases, and, and, and blaspheming God would be a, a, a capital offense as well, but in both cases, they brought the offender before Hashem. Now, that's curious, and the reason I bring this up is because many people who slander or libel the Torah and Judaism teach that the God of the Old Testament was a mean old ogre and the Jews were mean and evil and it was just so hard. They would just drag young kids out into the nighttime after they said no to mommy and just stone little 10-year-old Johnny to death. And it was just a bloodbath until the old rugged cross showed up and then suddenly God became merciful and kind and all that old mean rules went out the window. And then we find reality, right? Um, 
in reality is that nobody wants to kill anybody. And in fact, when they find somebody who really probably deserves to be killed, they take him to Hashem and say, uh, what do you think, Hashem? And it's Hashem who says to stone him. Not, not, not the court. Moses didn't say it. Aaron didn't say it. The, the Sanhedrin didn't say it. They, they, didn't, they took him to Hashem. Now, I also want to point out, because somebody might think, well, God, that was rough. Why would Hashem? I thought he was a God of mercy. Um, what you don't hear is that this person made tshuva. Just like the guy who, who gathered the wood. At what point did he make teshuva? At what point did he fall on his face and beg God's forgiveness and beg his mercy? Well, evidently, at no point did he do that. He was uplifted in pride, just like this person. It reminds me of the story of Achan. Anybody remember the story of Achan? The story of Achan, who, who took some things from Jericho, right? Some... some uh, uh, dedicated things. And so we go out to fight against AI. It's like the United States going to war against Uruguay. Nothing against Uruguay, but, you know, come on. And so we went to war against Uruguay, and uh, Uruguay, uh, I mean, just beat the holy tar out of us. And we're like, what? Well, um, God says, yeah, there's somebody who stole something they shouldn't have from Jericho. And so here's Joshua. He announces to all of Israel, the call of Israel, uh, the reason that Uruguay beat us is because somebody stole something from Jericho. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have the entire Jewish nation do a pass and review parade in front of me. And God is going to show me who stole something from Jericho. So here comes the entire nation. Millions of people marching past uh, Joshua. And then, you know, Hashem highlights the tribe, and then he has the tribe come by, then Hashem highlights the uh, clan, and the clans come by, and then he highlights the families, and the families come by, and finally it, it, it highlights Achan. Now, that I don't know how long that took. The, the, the Tanakh doesn't really tell us, but I would imagine that that whole process took a long time. At least hours, maybe days. Okay? At what point does Aiken say, um, no need to do the pass and review. It was me. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm so, so sorry. He doesn't say that. In fact, he doesn't even make tshuva until he is highlighted by Hashem and said, that's the one. It's only then that he seems to express his sorrow. I'm convinced that had Achan made tshuva from the very beginning, or at some point during the process, if he had just said, you know, this is, we're not, I'm, I'm, I just can't, yeah, no, I'm done. Uh, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. If he'd have done that, if he'd have fallen before uh, before uh, Hashem, that that um, there would have been forgiveness there, and, and maybe he would have been spared. That's my point. So it goes on to say here. Um, so Hashem Hashem's the one who said, "Remove him." And it says, "And the children of Israel, you shall speak, saying, Any man who is who will blaspheme his God shall bear his sin.'" 
and one who pronounces blasphemous the name of Adonai shall be put to death. The entire assembly shall surely stone him, proselyte and native alike. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Now, this is one of the reasons, ladies and gentlemen, why we treat the name of the Holy One, blessed be he, with such honor and respect, and we don't try to pronounce it. It is utterly holy. And no one, I'm telling you right now, no one, no one knows how to pronounce it. In the Magzor, by the way, of Yom Kippur, it's one of the few places, there's, there's a point, I'm not going to tell you where, but there's a point in the Magzor, I have seen it, the Hazan has seen it, the Gabai has seen it, and others have seen it that can read Hebrew, where the divine name for the first time ever is actually vocalized. You have to be able to read Hebrew to know to know it. But I can tell you, I would never pronounce it, not even when I'm, when I'm looking at it. And I know how to pronounce it because I can read Hebrew. I'm not a genius, I'm just, it's just a fact. And others can read Hebrew too. Some of them even better than me. And, but we would never pronounce it out loud. But I can assure you, I promise you, that as you're looking at the Magzor for Yom Kippur, and you see that divine name there, the Yudke Vavke vocalized, meaning that with the vowel, vowel markers underneath it, it would not be pronounced in any way, even remotely close to anything you have seen on any Messianic or Hebrew Roots website or YouTube or whatever. Not even remotely close. Okay? That's the problem. It's an extremely holy name, and therefore to mispronounce it was some type of wackadoodle pronunciation is to a certain extent to blaspheme it. I'm just saying. Okay? Uh, so, it says, And a man, if he strikes mortally any human life, he shall be put to death. And a man who strikes mortally an animal's life shall make restitution, a life for a life. And if a man inflicts a wound in his fellow, as he did, so shall be done to him. A break for a break, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, just as he will inflict a wound on a person, so shall he inflict upon him, upon him. Now, just real quick. Golly, there's so much to comment on here. If you're word of God only, which many people purport to be, now we don't want those uh, silly, rascally rabbis and, their, and all of their uh, knowledge and all of their experience and all their uh, family history. Their grandfathers were with Moses on the mountain. But we know more than they because we were born in America in the 70s or in the 80s and the 90s, um, and we know more than they do, um, so we don't want any of their uh, word. We're just going to be word of God only. Well, if you're word of God only, then, um, you know, if somebody breaks something of yours, you've got to go break something of theirs. If somebody causes damage to your eye, you've got to hold them down and gouge their eye out. Um, if somebody, uh, you know, if you're playing around with a friend, um, or if you're in a ball game and somebody knocks your tooth out, well, then you're, 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 you're word of God only. You've got to go knock their tooth out right then and there. Um, if they inflict a kind of wound on you of any kind, somebody wounds you in, in any way, then you're, you're required by the Torah. You're word of God only. You understand that, right? You've got to go wound them immediately. Um, except, except You know what I'm getting at, right? Okay. Well, you're going to go to jail. 
and you're going to spend a long time in jail and your life will be ruined. But that's because you're word of God only. For those people who are sane and actually um, understand the oral tradition, then you'll find out that what this means in actuality is that it's a, it's a, um, a system of tort law. That you've, if you knock somebody's tooth out, you've got to pay for the tooth. It was always understood to be a financial restitution. But you only get that if you believe in the oral tradition. By the way, doesn't that seem a lot more merciful? I mean, gouging somebody's eye out because you had your eye knocked out, that seems kind of harsh. So the rabbis came along and said, actually, no, what it means, you've got to pay for the eye. It's uh, you know, mon- mon- a civil situation. That, to me, seems a lot more merciful than holding someone down and gouging their eye out. So it says, one who strikes an animal shall make restitution, and one who strikes a person shall be put to death. There shall be one law for you. It shall be for the proselyte and the native alike, for I am not your God. Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and, and they took the blasphemer out to outside the camp. They stoned him to death, and the children of Israel did as Adonai had commanded Moses. All right. So, moving right along into, uh, into the insights here. By the way, Rosh Hashanah, I mentioned I want to say just a couple things about that. I said it was the resurrection of the dead. That's how um, Judaism has understood always that the resurrection of the dead is going to occur on Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is actually the celebration of, of the um, uh, creation of man. Uh, Rosh Hashanah is the day upon which God created Adam. He brought man up from the dust. Which is why the resurrection is going to occur on that day. Because on the very day that God created man from the dust of the earth, Hashem is going to bring man up from the dust of the earth. Okay? Um, also, Rosh Hashanah is, occurs in the month of Tishrei, which is the month in which God created the heavens and the earth. The reason that God is going to recreate the heavens and the earth on the very same month that he created the heavens and the earth is because everything that, that God does is tov. In other words, he doesn't need to... If he, So let's, let me put it this way. If God created the heavens and the earth in Tishrei, but then later, you know, everything gets messed up because of us, but then later he decides, you know, I'm going to recreate the heavens and the earth, but this time I'm going to do it in Nisan then it would insinuate that there was something wrong with God's choice of Tishrei to begin with. You understand that, right? So when people say, well, before before Passover, Tishrei was the, the day, but now it's Nisan. Well, then that means God changes, and there's a reason why God would have to change, because that would imply that something was wrong with his original decision. But God always goes back to the source and does everything there to, ins- to, to, to say that, listen, there was nothing wrong with the original plan. It was your fault. This is why Yeshua had to go back to Ganadin, that is the Temple Mount, to make the offering. Why? Because that's where everything began and that's where it's going to be re-beginning. Now, I also want to tell you something, by the way. Art scroll, people ask me all the time, Rabbi, what books should I buy? And I, my answer to that is all of them. But... Um, there's a great series that Art Scroll has. It's called the Art Scroll Mazora series. 
And it's uh, the various festivals. I think I have all of these little books, but I don't. I didn't. I don't have them with me. They're at my home library. But I, so I printed out a little page that has this book on it. And uh, this little book—they're about twenty dollars a piece or so from Art Scroll. This little book is on Shavuot, uh, but it says the Ashkenazi way of Shavuos. Um, there's one for Pesach. There's one for Purim. There's one for Tisha B'Av. There's one for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, uh, uh, Sukkot. Anyway, these little books, it's the Art School Mazora series. Uh, this is on Shavuot, its observance, laws, and, and significance. You know, um, These are great little books. This is a great collection for you to start working on. Because I have found in my life that as the holidays are, are coming, or getting close, I like to pull this little book off the shelf because it has the history, lots of insights, lots of halakha um, in here. Uh, Talmudic and traditional sources. It's really, really wonderful. All specific to whatever holiday the book is is, is highlighting. And um, I like to review these and kind of read about it before. I try to do it before every holiday. And it really enhances uh, the experience of the holiday. So I just want to encourage you. That's just something that you can start collecting. And uh, I don't know how many of there are. Like I said, over the years, I think I've acquired all of them, Maybe. Uh, but they're all good. They're all awesome. All right, so going back to some insights here. Okay, so Pesach. What is Pesach about? An insight real quick. We're just going to power through a couple of insights here from a Rabbi Monk. Um, the annual cycle begins with the festival of Pesach, which is consecrated to the love between God and Abraham's descendants a love which blossoms into Israel's existence as a nation. This festival corresponds to the first phase of Judaism originated by Abraham, the father of all believers, and is inspired by his intense love of God and man. That is Hesed. Abraham, of course, is the father of all believers. That is the uh, belief of Judaism, of course. So I, I, I thought that was nice because, you know, our relationship with God begins with love. And that the, the, the way that our relationship uh, begins is through being redeemed by the Lamb um, at Passover. It begins there. It doesn't end there. That's the thing, is that love is the beginning, but it's not the end. You know, that we go from Passover to Shavuot. So it says here, um, the next insight is equally as fascinating. It says the second stage, so the first stage is Hesed. The first stage is Passover, it's Hesed. Hesed. It says the second stage is marked by the festival of Shavuot. It commemorates a vow of eternal obedience through which the nation received the Torah at Sinai. So we begin with love. But we move from love to commitment. Okay? And the commitment is the vow. The Torah at Sinai. So it says Shavuot, listen to this. Shavuot corresponds to the phase of Abraham's son Isaac who added the concept of obedience to his father's concept of love as he showed by allowing himself to be bound on God's altar in readiness for, quote, 
the ultimate sacrifice. So the ultimate sacrifice from a Jewish point of view is the son laying himself down for the love of God and for the desire, not just the love of God, but the desire to be obedient to his commandments. So what is equally fascinating about this is that when it comes to the giving of the Torah, Shavuot, the giving of the Torah is directly related, it corresponds to the Akedah, the son who laid his life down for our atonement in obedience with the will of God. That's what Shavuot, the giving of the Torah, corresponds to. Isn't that fascinating? And it says the following stage, that of Jacob, is represented by the, the festival of Sukkot. This festival unites the family under the shelter of the sukkah in an atmosphere of harmony and joy, joyful confidence in God's protection. This sense of unity is associated with our forefather Abraham, or excuse me, uh, Jacob, who symbolized love and obedience within his personality, who brought up his 12 sons to carry forward the heritage. What's Equally interesting is that um, the festival of Sukkot, or excuse me, the festival of Shemini at Zeret, which is an additional festival, is a festival characterized by Moses, the man who transmitted the law to the to the people in the name of Adonai. And Moses is kind of associated with Messiah ben Yosef. He was the first redeemer to come. The festivals of Purim, the festival of Purim, rather. The festival of Mordecai and Esther invokes Israel's national resistance. So Purim is about resisting uh, the enemy. And this festival, maybe it's, maybe it's why it's one of my favorite, is represented by Joseph, who is the staunch defender of Judaism uh, in his pagan surroundings. And when Mashiach comes, Rabbi Monk brings down that there's going to be, an, a, a, there's going to be a, a new festival, which will be called the Festival of David, that we will celebrate. And perhaps that festival will be the, um, uh, the festival of uh, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, I want to say uh, two more things. I'm, I'm, I'm over my time a little bit, but spare me, if you will, a couple more minutes. So there's a, an insight brought down that says, why, is the, why doesn't it say in the Torah? Because we celebrate Shavuot as the giving of the Torah, right? But why doesn't it say that explicitly? Why does it not say in the Torah, thou shalt celebrate Shavuot as the giving of the Torah? Because this is the time in which the Torah was given. Why come it didn't say that? Why is it only through tradition that we celebrate Shavuot as the time when the Torah is given. Here's the answer. It says, The only allusion to the holiday character of the end of the seven-week period, the Torah does not speak of Shavuot as a festival given the Torah. Why? The answer is to remember that by its very metaphysical nature, the Torah cannot, the Torah cannot be restricted by the dimensions of time and space. Just as the exact place where it was given remains shrouded in mystery, so is the date itself left ambiguous. The Torah resembles the soul in the human body. One cannot localize it precisely. 
The day on which the Torah was bequeathed to us may have been the 6th or 7th of Nisan. The only certitude we have about the place is that it occurred in the desert, a land belonging to everyone just like the Torah is everyone's possession. Similarly, the soul, that is the Torah, has its own spiritual reality, requiring neither the emblem or monument nor even an anniversary of this promulgation. In other words, because the Torah transcends time, we have a holiday in which we celebrate it, and we celebrate its giving, but in actuality, see, this is why people say, well, they didn't do that because the Torah wasn't given yet. What are you talking about? The Torah has always been. There's not a point at which the Torah was given. <laughs> you understand? Because creation is Torah. Someone says, well, the Torah hadn't come yet. Then how was there an earth? Because everything that has been made was made with the Torah. There was no time at which the Torah came. The Torah has always been. Why? Because the Torah is Hashem. So the argument that, well, uh, they did that until the Torah was given. Nuh uh, no, sir, no, ma'am. The Torah has always been. That's why it will always be. See, at any point that we say the Torah came at a certain time, then we could suggest, God forbid, it could leave at a certain time. But since the Torah has always been, it shall always be. So the night of Shavuot is consecrated to the holy union of God and man. There's a wonderful insight here about the Omer account and how it relates to the Nidah and how the Nidah counts seven days a week before she can be reunited with her husband. And we counted seven weeks because we were so steeped in our sin, it required seven weeks to be purified before we could be united with God vis-a-vis -vis the Torah. <clears throat> so it says that therefore distinguishes nowadays by this this, this time of, of Shavuot is distinguished nowadays by the practice of st staying up all night long and learning the Torah. As for the Nidah's immersion in water of the mikvah at the end of the seven days, it is represented by the Torah in which we immerse ourselves during those wakeful hours. So just like the Nidah, after she's counted seven days, she goes to the mikvah and immerses herself and then is able to go home and be united with her husband. Just like that, we count seven weeks of the Omer to cleanse ourselves, God willing, of all of our faults and failures and all those bad things. And God help us to correct ourselves. And at the end of that time, we have an all-night Torah study. Why? Because it's a mikvah. That Torah study all night is a mikvah, a spiritual mikvah, that prepares us to receive the Torah the next day. And by the way, it says in Jeremiah that God is the mikvah of Israel. End of our Aliyah today. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Have a great Sabbath. Have a great prep day. We look forward to seeing everybody here in the synagogue. Do not be in fear. Everything's going to be fine, ladies and gentlemen. Don't be in fear. It's all fine. Okay, uh, COVID is not the end of the world. It's not the great plague that's going to destroy the earth. It's not the great apocalypse. Um, there's not 10 guys on ho white horses roaming the streets. It's all as well. It's going to be fine. Okay, please. Everybody, we'll see everybody. Shabbat Shalom. Have a great day. God love you. See you.